Welcome to the Brush with Brit podcast. I'm your host, Brit, and I'm thrilled to have you join me on this exciting journey into the world of dentistry. With a decade of experience in the dental field, I bring a wealth of knowledge and expertise to help guide you on your path. Having spent eight years as a registered dental assistant, followed by three years as a dental hygienist, I've had the privilege of gaining practical experience in both roles. Beyond my clinical practice, I'm passionate about mentorship, guiding others, and advocating for dental hygienists and patients. Through this podcast, my aim is to create a supportive space where you can learn, grow, and relate to the ups and downs of being a dental professional. Whether you're looking to expand your knowledge, enhance your skills, or simply stay up to date with the latest trends in dentistry, you've come to the right place. Together, let's embark on a journey of personal and professional development, empowering you to become the best dental professional you can be. Today's episode is going to focus on sleep disordered breathing, sleep apnea, and airway evaluations. We're going to be reviewing all of these things with my good friend, Bethany Montoya, who is a writer, a speaker, a creator, a dental hygienist, and so much more. She has helped me in a variety of ways as a new dental hygienist and in teaching me how to provide my patients with airway evaluations. I've taken her continuing education courses on sleep apnea and have learned so much about dental sleep medicine. That's why I really wanted to have her on this episode. I've gotten so many questions about sleep apnea and airway evaluation. And the first step is always just being open to the idea of learning something new and also learning how to implement it in your daily practice. And I promise you, implementing airway evaluations is way easier than you think it is. And once you start doing it, you will be able to identify the signs and the symptoms and start having these conversations with your patients with confidence. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode of Brush with Brit. It is so hard to stay on time when practicing clinically. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Color Method by Zerk Dental Products. It helps me stay organized, which ultimately leads me to being more efficient and it saves me time. Color Method is a color-coded organizational system that helps in the management and location of instruments and materials in the dental office. If you're thinking, Brit, I don't have time for that or the boss won't let us, Zerk has everything you need to guide you through the process, including clinical coaches that will help you organize your office. To learn more about the color method, visit colormethod.com and enter code BRIT for 25% off the silver consulting plan. I'm excited for today's episode because like how we were talking earlier, some of the things that I, a lot of the things that I have learned about sleep apnea, I learned from taking your uh, continuing education courses. So I feel like with sleep apnea, I don't remember learning very much about it while in dental hygiene school. And I think a lot of the listeners might relate to that. And I think I would like to start just by having you give a brief description of what sleep apnea actually is. Sleep apnea is a chronic condition where a person goes through periods in the night where they're not breathing. And it's usually because the muscles and the tissue that support their airway collapse And so when that happens, 
they usually go through anywhere from, you know, a few seconds to several seconds where they're just not breathing at all. And then they have these moments where they kind of catch their breath and everything is fine for a little bit. And then they have another apneic event. And I really like to communicate to my patients and my colleagues, um, the fact that it is a chronic condition. It's it's just like periodontal disease. So once you develop it, you will have it for the rest of your life. We haven't really figured out an effective way to permanently cure sleep apnea. So in knowing that, we know that it's always going to require treatment for that person in order to stay healthy. And as a dental hygienist, how does sleep apnea play a role in clinical practice? I think that since we are probably the only healthcare provider that our patients see multiple times a year, whether it's every six months or three months, or I've had hygiene patients that I see once every one or two months, we we see their mouth as a window to their overall health. And there are so many things, so many findings that we can come across inside of the mouth that can kind of clue us into some underlying systemic issues. And so when it concerns sleep disordered breathing, a lot of the clinical findings that we might typically associate with clenching and grinding or, um, acid reflex, things like that, we we need to be able to connect all of those dots clinically and be able to recognize when that person might have a bigger problem. It might not just simply be clenching and grinding. It might not simply be acid reflex. They may actually have obstructive sleep apnea. And so it's important for clinicians to be able to recognize that for one, but also be able to have confident conversations with their patients to be able to educate them and help direct them to to the next step so that they can properly investigate their health or their health and seek treatment. So when clinicians are doing an oral cancer screening or an EOIO, what are some of the uh are sim- what are some of the things that they can look for intraorally that might indicate Uh, sleep apnea? So you can start to assess the patient even just from the extra oral exam. So that some of those things that you'd be looking at is just the person's overall um, body type. If if they're a larger person, Um, maybe their BMI, that would be another important thing. Generally speaking, a BMI of 30 or greater would increase that person's risk of having sleep disordered breathing. Their neck size would be another important thing to look at. A lot of dental offices are actually keeping um, measuring tape inside of the operatory so that they can measure that person's neck. And studies show us that women with a neck size of 16 inches or larger and men with neck sizes of 17 inches or larger are at risk for sleep apnea. And then once you segue into your intraoral exam, um, we would want to look at things like occlusal wear, um, wear facets, those kind of um, smoothed out areas, dug out areas of 
the occlusal surfaces that a lot of times we associate with acid reflux. Looking at the tongue, if you know, looking to see if they have a large tongue or if there's any scalloping on the tongue. So in, in case anyone listening doesn't know what scallop tongue is, that just means that the lateral border of that person's tongue has permanent indentations all around the edge in, in the shape of that person's teeth. And a patient can develop that when their tongue is taking up too much space in the airway And so their natural response is to press it against the teeth to kind of move it out of the way. So that would be another important finding. Um, Evaluating the uvula, is it an average size? Does it look enlarged? Do the tonsils look average size or do they look enlarged? And then the last thing that I would be looking at is how well you can actually visualize the person's airway. So an easy way to do that would be to use what we call a Malampati scoring system, and and you can Google that so easily. But um, you can see, if you Google Malampati, you'll be able to see some pictures where um, you can have either um, up to a grade four, and the worst grade would tell you that if you had your patient open wide and stick out their tongue and say, ah, their tongue would be completely blocking their airway. So you wouldn't be able to see anything past the tongue. So those things would be important findings. And of course, the more findings that you that you see with your patient, when you kind of combine them together, those would be definitely raising some red flags so that you can have a really good conversation with the patient afterwards. And what about some of the symptoms of sleep apnea? So maybe things like snoring, what other things can clinicians expect to to look for? Yeah, I think snoring is by far one of the biggest indicators. Now, it is possible for a person to snore and not have sleep apnea, but just depending on the research that you look at, somewhere between 80 to 95% of people who snore do have sleep apnea. So because that relationship is so strong, a person that's snoring is at a much higher risk of having sleep apnea. It's frequent. And if it can get pretty loud, those those are going to increase the chances even more. I would say some other common symptoms would be excessive daytime sleepiness, just feeling like you never have enough energy to tackle the day. Fatigue would be another one, just feeling extremely tired. Um, waking up in the morning, feeling like you had unrefreshed sleep. And and I have a lot of patients that will tell me, it doesn't matter if I laid in bed for six hours or 12 hours. I still, I never feel like I got enough sleep. So those would be... Um, definitely some important symptoms to notate. And, and I would say too, you know, when it comes to screening for these things in the dental office, an easy way to do that as well would be to add some questions in, in your health history questionnaire to, to be able to bring up the subject. So you can have questions in your questionnaire that ask about snoring or family history of sleep apnea or a past diagnosis of sleep apnea, whether or not that person has used a CPAP device before. Those would be 
really easy ways to open up a conversation with a patient. And, and if you wanted to take it a step further, you could also include some specific sleep questionnaires in your paperwork. There's one called the Epworth uh, Sleep Score, and it's, it's asking the person to rate how tired they would be doing different activities. And once they rate each one, you add those numbers together and the higher the score is, the higher the chances are that that person may have some sleep disordered breathing issues. Um, another, another form that you could look up would be one called the stop bang. And, and it's doing a similar thing. It's, it's basically quantifying that person's quality of sleep and it allows the practitioner to be able to have informed conversations with the patients. It allows you to have something to go off of as you're continuing to assess and question your patient. One of the big ones I feel like most people hear is uh, clenching and grinding. And throughout dentistry, I've always heard, you know, night guard, night guard, do you clench and grind? Okay, we'll get you a night guard. And after continuing my education and learning things about sleep disordered breathing. That's one thing I wanted to make sure that we touch base on because I think uh, a lot of us hear about clenching and grinding. Is is that another um, sign or symptom of uh, sleep disordered breathing? Yes, absolutely. So, and, and I will say that up until maybe six or seven years ago, I was definitely one of those dental hygienists that anytime I had a hygiene patient where I was seeing wear on the teeth, I was just immediately talking with them about a night guard, about getting them into a flat plane splint. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know a lot about sleep. I thought I was doing the best thing for my patient. But over the years, I've learned that bruxism can be a... Um, more significant symptom of sleep disordered breathing. And, and what the thought is behind it is if a person is experiencing a restricted airway or a collapsed airway, one of the things their body can attempt to do to try to temporarily solve that problem is manipulate the position of the jaw. And by kind of grinding your jaw around, it, it will move all those muscles to open up the airway a little bit. Um, but of course, by doing that, you are tearing up your teeth. And for a lot of a lot of these individuals, they end up experiencing a lot of inflammation in in the TMJ, and and that can stir up a lot of pain. And so, I think that we really need to reframe the way that we approach these conversations with our patient. If we're seeing a lot of signs of bruxism. It's, it's a good opportunity for us to ask them about the quality of their sleep. And one thing that I've learned from personal experience is it's, it's very risky to jump into that conversation by immediately asking your patient, do you snore? I've just learned that coming right in with that, um, it's almost never going to turn out very well. Patients don't like talking about their snoring and and. For whatever reason, especially our female patients, that can be a really touchy topic. And so instead, instead of asking the patient if they're having issues with snoring, why don't we ask them 
to describe the quality of their sleep. The majority of patients would tell you that they don't snore or they don't have any sleep issues. Um, If you start off that way by asking them to describe the quality of their sleep, they will give you a different perspective and and they'll tell you, "Uh, I just, I don't sleep very well. I just, I'm always tired. I never feel like I get enough sleep. Um, but then you'll, you'll kind of, the more that they talk about it, you'll probably also see them try to minimize that. Like, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, that's just part of being an adult. You, you're just tired all the time because life is busy and we don't get enough time to sleep. And so you're just tired all the time. But for a lot of these people, there's more to that. There's, there's more underlying causes that are causing that person's sleepiness and fatigue. So it's, it's a great way to start a conversation. And, and I love just the, uh, the kind of answers that I get from patients. While we're performing a hypertension screening, if the hyper, if their blood pressure is elevated, is that also correlated with, or potentially related to, um, sleep disordered breathing? Yes, it's actually one of the most popular comorbidities associated with obstructive sleep apnea. So, you know, it, it, if a person has hypertension, it doesn't automatically mean that that person has sleep apnea, but it, it would be a good opportunity in learning that a person has high blood pressure to ask some more questions. Um, as far as the relationship there, what happens for a lot of people is when they're having these apneic events at night and they're they're suffering from a continual oxygen deficit the heart's job is to provide enough oxygen in the blood to keep all of our organs vital while we're sleeping and so when the brain recognizes that we're suffering from an oxygen deficit, it will signal to the heart to start beating harder and faster to try to compensate for that lack of oxygen. And by doing that, it can cause a wide array of cardiovascular diseases. Hypertension is is one of the more popular ones, but it's also, it's why we tell our patients that untreated obstructive sleep apnea puts you at a much, much higher risk of developing a heart attack or a stroke. It's it's a lot for our system. If we are, you know, starting connect connecting all these dots with our patients and and we're seeing the scalloped tongue and a blocked airway, elevated blood pressure readings, what would be our next step if we suspect that they potentially have sleep apnea? If you're suspecting that your patient might have sleep apnea, the appropriate next step is for that patient to undergo a sleep study. And and I think that one of the important jobs that we have as healthcare providers is to educate our patients um, in knowing that a person doesn't have to have an in-lab overnight sleep test in order to have a sleep study. There's, um, there's been a growing popularity with home sleep testing. And in fact, over the past several years, especially since COVID, I've seen where a lot of medical insurance companies actually prefer for their subscribers to have home sleep testing over the in-lab overnight tests. So I think that's important to communicate to our patients because 
a big misunderstanding with the general public is that if they're having sleep problems, the only way to test for it is in an, an overnight sleep test. And the only way to treat sleep apnea is with a CPAP device. And, and both of those are not true. So making sure that we're talking with our patients about their options is going to be really important. And then once you've established that, that knowledge with your patient and, and they know that next step, I think that we need to take it one step further as, as their healthcare provider and assist them in facilitating that next step. So, you know, a lot of dental practices, they may either have um, direct access to home sleep testing equipment, or there are other dental practices that they have pulse, ox- pulse oximetry equipment in their office. That would be another great way to screen. So, a pulse oximeter, um, we can't use it to fully screen for and diagnose sleep apnea. But being able to get a reading of your patient's blood oxygen levels while they're sleeping can be very telling. And and if you're seeing where that person is going through periods where their blood oxygen is taking some pretty deep dives, that again would be another really important reason for that person to pursue actual testing. So um, if your practice does not offer home sleep testing, then you'll want to get them in touch with either their primary care physician, or it would be beneficial to have a relationship with a local sleep clinic. And most most larger towns and cities have those. So you can do a little research on your end to find to find those offices or those clinics that are local for you. But being able to provide our patients with a direct connection to those places is really important because I think we know about people. We we know that if we make a recommendation, but we don't actually lead them to the lead them to water, there there a lot of them are not going to do all the research and the homework on their end to to finish the process. So that's a really important responsibility that we have is to make sure that they actually get to take part in that continuity of care and they get connected with the right professionals that can help them further. When I was new, um, I still consider myself a new hygienist, but when I very first started out, I had no idea what a CPAP machine was. Um, So I think that it would be great if you could give a description of what that is. Um, And I actually like to include that in in my questionnaires too. Like when I'm talking to the patient, I'll ask them if they have one, Um, like medical history review, you know, do you have sleep apnea? Do you wear a CPAP? But I think it would be helpful for the listeners uh, just to hear a little bit about what a CPAP machine is. It's basically a machine that a person turns on at night and there's a mask that's connected to the machine that they wear and it is providing them with pressurized air that's coming through the mask that their healthcare provider is able to adjust the pressure setting on the machine so that just depending on the extent of that person's collapsed airway when they're having those sleep apnea events the air is strong enough to be able to blow past their collapsed airway. So generally speaking, the more severe a person's sleep apnea is, the higher the pressure setting on their CPAP will be turned to. Um, 
And and there are some variations to uh, the CPAP device. Like there's something they call an APAP, where the A stands for automatic. There's a BiPAP machine. Um, in essence, they're they're all accomplishing the same thing. They just they work in different ways to kind of synchronize with that person's breathing patterns and things to to try to make it more tolerable. Um, we consider CPAP to be the gold standard in treating obstructive sleep apnea. It's been around for a really long time. And, and like I said, it doesn't matter how severe a person's sleep apnea is, the pressure setting on a CPAP can be turned up high enough to to effectively treat them. So, you know, what I have found is a lot of people that go through sleep testing, their their physician who scores and interprets their test, when they go over their test results with them, they if they test positive for sleep apnea, they generally will immediately recommend a CPAP as the first line of defense. And I would say within the medical community, I think there's still a significant degree of skepticism surrounding other options. And so again, I think as oral health care providers, that's, that's another opportunity for us to be able to communicate the fact that patients do have options because although CPAP is great, there, there are some downsides to CPAP too. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people have a tough time tolerating it. And, and I want to say that one of the last studies that I looked at, um, showed that the, um, I'm trying to think here. I think it said that there's about a 30% non-compliance rate with CPAP. So, you know, there's a significant portion of people that are prescribed a PAP device and they attempt to use it for however long, and then they ultimately decide that they just can't do it. They they can't wear it, and then they use nothing. And so that's where that's where having options is so important for those patients. If a hygienist is looking to start to implement airway evaluations and build their confidence on uh, providing patients with that care, what is a way that they can gain that confidence and start to become familiar with sleep disordered breathing and doing those airway evaluations. I think a lot of clinicians need to remember that completing an airway screening doesn't have to be an extra step that you incorporate into your process of care during your hygiene appointments. It's it's actually something that you can be doing while you're doing your your intra and extra oral exam. It's you know during your oral cancer screening, you're basically looking at all of the same anatomical features, and so I think that's one thing that clinicians need to remember because most of us feel like you know we're we're very pressed for time during the average hygiene visit. There's a lot of steps to work into a 60 minute appointment or, you know, if you work in a practice where you even have less time than that, um, it can feel a little overwhelming knowing that you have to do one more thing. So we need to remember that it doesn't add any extra time. Um, but then it, it, for clinicians that are wanting some more training with it, I, I provide courses that talk about airway assessment. Um, 
I have a course that I'll be presenting next week with cloud dentistry, and it's called You're a Hygienist and You Can Do That, Alternative Careers in Dental Sleep Medicine. And so I'll be talking about completing airway assessments and and how a person can do that. Um, and, and then I feature a lot of those things on, on my social media account as well. And also your articles. <laughs> yeah, I write a lot about it too. Um, and the last thing I wanted to briefly touch on was mouth taping. Um, this is really big on, I've seen it a lot on social media and TikTok and Instagram. And I wanted to just briefly touch base on that so clinicians can have an idea of how to have that conversation with their patients when they ask about mouth taping. Yeah, that's that's actually a really, really great topic. I'm, I'm glad you asked about it, Britt. I, I personally love mouth tape. I think that there are so many great applications for it because we've just learned that I think, I think the recent research out there says that 60% of the world's population are mouth breathers. And, and we know that nasal breathing is actually the most natural way for us to breathe. And there are a lot of health benefits associated with nasal breathing that you just can't get when you're mouth breathing. It's actually detrimental to your system. So um, mouth, mouth tape came along several years back. And the concept behind it is that you're wearing a piece of adhesive tape over your lips to keep them sealed closed. And there are a lot of variations. I mean, you you can buy mouth tape on Amazon and they make, you know, all kinds of shapes and sizes of it. You could use a piece of like surgical paper tape on your lips. I've I've seen where people will even use just like the the sticky part of a band-aid and and for mouth tape, actually one of my more favorite uses for it is during exercise. I, I think that a lot of us have the tendency to mouth breathe when when we're doing a lot of cardio and our heart rate is up. Um, and that's actually one of the times where it would really benefit us to be breathing in and out of our nose. And so wearing mouth tape for things like that is great. I've seen where a lot of professional athletes are doing that. But when it concerns sleep, I wouldn't recommend a person use mouth tape unless they've already had a sleep study and the sleep study has proven that they do not have sleep apnea. Um, I Mouth tape can work really well to resolve snoring, but as we've already established, snoring alone is a really big risk factor for sleep apnea. So Unless you fully investigated that and you know without a shadow of a doubt that you do not suffer from sleep apnea, I wouldn't recommend using mouth tape for snoring. Because if you think about it, you know, you're you're having these periods where your airway is collapsing and you're suffering from an oxygen deficit. Why would you add another reason why you're having a hard time breathing? You know, it it doesn't make sense. So um I would just I would recommend saving mouth tape for for people who um, they they've already had a sleep study and they know that they're not needing any treatment for sleep apnea or um, mouth tape could work for a person who is treating their sleep apnea with 
an oral appliance. So if, if they've got something in the mouth that is manually opening up the airway, then, then they can, ex- they can, um, try, try experimenting with mouth tape to see if, if, you know, that can help with their nasal breathing and things. But I would say use mouth tape with caution and mouth breathing alone is, is also another risk factor for sleep apnea. So it's, it's a really common finding and, and actually in what I do in helping to provide dental sleep medicine services to my patients, our oral appliances that we deliver to our patients have um, they have little hooks that are built into the upper and the lower trays that they wear as part of their appliance. And they have the option of wearing orthodontic elastics on those hooks that connect the upper and lower teeth together. And, and it's for that benefit. It's, it's for the patient to um, be encouraged to breathe in and out of their nose. It helps to keep their mouth closed so that they don't wake up in the morning with a dry mouth. Um, but yeah, nasal breathing, it's so, so important. It, um, it's, it helps to kind of warm up the air that we're breathing before it reaches our lungs. It results in a release of nitric oxide, which has so many applications within the body. It's really important. So, but again, I, I wouldn't recommend, um, restricting yourself to nasal breathing if you have an underlying issue with sleep apnea. Thank you so much, Bethany, for sharing your knowledge and expertise with our listeners. Um, I will leave all of the description of this episode in the box of the episode and where they can contact you. And if anybody is looking to learn more about sleep apnea, I highly recommend taking Bethany's course. Uh, I will also link that in the the description as well. So thank you for uh, sharing everything and all of your knowledge. Yeah, thank you, Britt. I appreciate it. All right. Until next time, this is the Brush with Britt podcast. Mm-hmm.